This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. You're listening to the Kitchen Confession podcast with Chef Mary Mamalidi. Jamie Oliver, he invited me to go spend three days uh, with him and his team. Hilltop in Italy, three days. It was an experience of a lifetime, and it was humbling and empowering at the same time because I was there talking all about our Canadian food scene, and they were like gobsmacked. In Canada, we don't have the Michelin uh, listing, and yet our chefs stand head and shoulders above many, many Michelin star chefs. And it was quite wonderful to share the, these with not only Jamie and his crew, who turned out to be the nicest people in the world, but also a fellow journalist who had flown in from Europe and from Australia. That's Rita DeMontis. She's the award-winning national lifestyle and food editor for Sun Media Division of Post Media Network. You may also recognize her from regular appearances on TV and radio. Rita, welcome to the show. That's my my, my Oprah moment. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> I am so excited to have you here. I think that my, my introduction kind of says it all. <laughs> now, I want to talk a little bit about what you do. So how did you get started covering food? Uh, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a long story. Um, so, you know, I've been at The Sun 45 years. And before that, I worked for TV Guide magazine. I was the, the youngest editor because, you know, you can graduate from high school on, on a Friday and go to work on a Monday. And there was a little uh, sign up uh, in the um, on the bulletin board uh, at, at school and I applied a month earlier. So I ended up in media, but I'm always feeding people. My mother was a professional cook. I learned from the master, shall we say, and then I would take cooking classes and things like that. I was always bringing in food. When I started at The Sun, I started doing the television uh, magazine there because that's where I came from. And then 18 months later, they gave me um, a consumer column to write, started writing, writing for lifestyle, and I was always uh, coming up with food ideas. And then one day, just by you know, a happy coincidence, I guess, uh, I started writing food stories, interviewing chefs. I was always interested. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how it started. Did you always want to work in media? Yes, surprisingly. Always. When I was 12 years old, I used to collect TV Guide magazine covers. No way. And I was a kid. I was 12 years old. I was a, I was a really nerdy kid. And I just said one day, eh, I'm going to be working for this company. And I did. And it's funny, when the sun came on the horizon in 1971, deep down, I knew I would be working uh, for them one day. And that's, you know, I think it's... um. You just, you don't know what you're capable of until you start digging. And I, I I wouldn't do what I, you know, I was like 21 when I started at the sun. And I just remember phoning the uh, TV editor at the, of the time, a lovely man called um, the late Jim McPherson. I kept screwing up his name and calling him McPherson. And he just kept saying, will you stop phoning me? Will you're pain in the ass, please. You know, because I had left my job. And I was between work for a few months and I wanted to get back into media. I thought I could be a travel agent. Disaster. Just disaster. (laughs) I lasted all of five months. Anyways, make a long story short. um, I bugged this poor man. And a week later, after he told me off, he literally told me off. He uh, called me and says, do you know this job? And I said, oh, yeah, I do. And he says, okay, come on in and show me what you can do. And I came in and I thought, oh my God, I can do this with my eyes closed, with my hands tied behind my back. And it was meant to be. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it was like joining a circus. The sun was so exciting. I mean, it was like a, the real traditional newspaper. The, I, I'm sure people listening today would not understand the uh, the adage that if you, you cut a person who worked in, in the industry, they bled ink. But that's exactly how it was. And we would have lions and tigers and bears come in and we had famous people. And just the excitement of a newsroom, of a busy newsroom was just phenomenal, just phenomenal. And I, I drank it in every day. Every day was an adventure. And I was a small, uh, kind of nerdy kid, really shy. It took me six months to walk across the newsroom. But then I would look at all these heroes, you know, these giants and, the, you know, hanging out with people like Peter Worthington and Bob McDonald and all these swaggering kind of, uh, you know, testosterone driven study reporters who were fearless in my eyes and the women who are feminists. And it was just amazing. Like, I can't ask for a greater gift in my life to have been um, included in this beautiful uh, life. Now, you touched on something that I'm really curious about. You said testosterone driven. It was a male dominated profession. It was. What was it like being a female in that world? You know, it's really weird. I always felt like I was everyone's baby sister. They were always looking mm -hmm. after me. And because I wasn't, um, I was, I, you know, I didn't find my voice until years later, but I would, I, I was always curious and I was always interested and, and news. And they had a, I remember it was, I think it was six, seven months after I started, they had a hostage taking up the street. So we were at 333 King Street East and they had a hostage taking at a bank at King and, um, and Young. And it was like, wow, the city was shut down. The, the, um, it was in a bank. Uh, I think 12, 14 people were being held hostage. And I was curious. So I walked up because that's what I did. And a, and a police officer stopped me and says, um, you can't go past this because, you know, the gun is pointed directly at you. And I'm thinking, well, that's really dramatic. But I'm like, wow. And then I saw people I work with, with their cameras, and they were being fearless. And I, I thought, you know, there's an old saying that, you know, a coward will die a thousand deaths, but a hero will only die one. And I wanted to be that hero to deliver the story, <laughs> even though I end up writing about food. <laughs> That's incredible. It was fascinating. I had so many opportunities. I was really lucky because the really tough people I worked with, they were the ones who gave me the biggest chances. They opened doors for me. And, and you know, it was a paper that... And still is, you know, they uh, allowed you opportunities. So if you said, this is happening, or I've noticed that, or what do you think of this? They would say, then you do it, you write it, you grab it, and you own it. And I thought, wow, try that today. Okay, we're going to take a pause here for a quick game of this or that. Because we want to get to know Rita a little better. Morning person or a night owl? I'm a night owl. Home fries or crispy fries? Home fries. Peaches or nectarine? Peaches. Okay, listen to this next one carefully because this will determine how BFFs we can be. <laughs> give up sugar or give up salt? Oh, I think I would probably give up salt. That's it. We are besties for life. <laughs> Eggplant, parm, or lasagna? Well, I'm allergic to eggplant, so it's got to be lasagna. No way. Okay. Cake or ice cream? Cake. Pickles, dill or garlic? Uh, dill. Wine, red or white? 
Ugh, I, I don't like wine. <laughs> Neither. Actually, if I was to have an alcoholic drink, it would be scotch, a single malt, uh, straight up water on the side. Oh, Matt will definitely like that. <laughs> How have you noticed the media landscape change since you got your start at The Sun? Dramatically. It has, right? Dramatically, yeah. I mean, um, I get it. I understand how critical social media is, how there's so many, uh, you know, layers in place. Now the the big buzzwords are like, you know, of course, Instagram, TikTok. But who's going to, you know, I have to stand back and go, what am I in this, you know, ever evolving industry? Well, I, I we're called legacy journalists. And sometimes, you know, I get pitched about 45 times a day with different stories. Wonderful. But I'm being pitched like I'm a, I'm a social media person or that I'm an influencer. I am an influencer. But the big difference is, you know, I don't have a blog where I'm paid for opinion. My opinion is this is what we report on. I may have opinions that I could write about. Like I just wrote a big piece on 9-11. I wrote a piece a few months ago on... During World War II, we had uh, prison of war camps for Italian Canadians. My cultural heritage is Italian, even though I was born in France and I came here when I was two and a half. So I wrote a piece on it, understanding how difficult it was to be Italian in Canada. Very proud of my cult- culture, very, very proud of being Canadian. But there were challenging moments. And I wrote a column on it. That was an edit- That was my, my voice. The sun gave me that platform. I was really, really grateful for that. I'd like to think I, I'm an influencer in a sense that my writing is opening doors for people who are interested and are curious. I think ultimately you have to be curious. So I've been lucky. I've interviewed, not for anything, all the, most of the top chefs that you you read about, you hear about. I have had the opportunity to talk to them. I'm not big into name dropping, oh, but you know, do. like... <laughs> Anthony Bourdain, nine times, you know, Jamie Oliver, he invited me to go spend three days uh, with him and his team, including his business sidekick, Gennaro. Um, uh, yes. Yeah. Hilltop in Italy, three days. I was the only North American journalist invited. It was an experience of a lifetime and it was, um, it was humbling and empowering at the same time because I was there talking all about our Canadian uh, food scene and they were like gobsmacked and you know in Canada we don't have um, we don't have the Michelin uh, listing and yet our chefs stand head and shoulders above many many Michelin star chefs and I explained that to them and then I explained our food scene and uh, you know our food culture and how how diverse it is across the line because Canada is huge and it's more than the sum of its parts. And it was quite um, wonderful to share the, these with not only Jamie and his crew, who turned out to be the nicest people in the world, but also a fellow journalist who had flown in from Europe and from Australia, and I think uh, one from uh, Africa. So it was quite a wonderful uh, uh, experience for me. What does the Canadian food culture mean to you? Oh, pride. I'm so, I, you know, I'm so proud that I live in this incredible country that that produces some of the most profound foods in the world. And everywhere you turn, everyone has, you know, their identity. 
be it out west in the seafood scene. Oh my goodness, I was in Nova Scotia where I had the best uh, seafood chowder because it was all fresh. And it's all about the abundance, the freshness, the farm to table movement, the organic nature of it all that. Just to be so proud to be here, I, I have to tell you, I'm, you know, I became a Canadian citizen. I was born in France to Italian parents, which meant that I went through the process of becoming a Canadian when I was 20 studying the country, being invited to become a Canadian. And I've never, ever forgotten that sense of pride standing in front of a judge and being sworn in to what is, to me, the greatest country in the world. And let me just say, you can hear that pride in your voice today <laughs> as you're telling this, as you're speaking, telling this story. Honestly, you can hear it. And I was 20 and, you know, I'm 66 now and I still remember the beauty of that day and standing with my my relatives as you know and yet at the same time I'm so oh, so blessed to have such a powerful culture behind me I'm Mary Mamalini and you're listening to the Kitchen Confession Podcast today I'm talking with award-winning national lifestyle and food editor Rita DeMontis can you please tell me a little more about Anthony Bourdain because you've actually met him several times you know I really I was just so humbled by having met him, not once, but nine times. And every interview was different because this was a man who was very brave in a sense that he was actually very shy and opening himself up. But the best interview I had with him, uh, where I saw him without his guard up, he didn't have a guard up. He was open. You asked him anything, he answered. He was honest. He was raw. He, it was like he was like this inc incredible, powerful person. And but I interviewed him when he had a, a new cookbook out, newly married, new dad. And, you know, every time I would interview him, I braced for which Anthony is it this time. And I walked into a boardroom uh, of his publisher up at Young and Bloor at the time. And there was an incredibly friendly, lovely man sitting there saying, Rita, how are you? And I said, oh, I'm so sorry, because he was eating. He had a charcuterie board and he had his, you know, bread and olives. I remember he said, sit, have something to eat with me. And I said, no, you eat. I can leave and come back. He goes, no, 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 sit. I'm just hungry. And we started chatting and he was so happy. And he told me his second wife, Octavia, uh, is Sardinian. And I looked at him and I said, that's interesting because so am I. I go, where in Sardinia? Because Sardinia is the second largest island in the Mediterranean, but it's an incredible island. People there are like, they just remind me of just austere and profound. And it's the blue zone, actually. People from Sardinia live, they have longevity in their, in their DNA. But he said, oh, my wife's from the town of Nuoro. And I laughed and I said, well, that's where my relatives are from. It's an <laughs> obscure possibility we may be related. And we both laughed. <laughs> and he talked about the, the food of Sardinia, the crotonese formaggio, the pane carazao, the people, the ambience, and how much he loved it. And then the next time I, there was another interview, but then the last interview I did, I flew to New York City to interview him. And it was in October. And then, of course, he died the following spring. And he was very um, weary and very, I, I was looking at his arms. They were really um, sinewy. 
like cords, like you could see he worked out, but he was, he looked gaunt and he looked tired. And I said to him, I said, how are you, how are, how are you doing this? And he says, I don't know. I don't know where my time is because I, I, he was poor in time. So to deflect, you know, that almost like that moment of grief, if you will, I said, you know, I loved all your, all your episodes, but my favorite was when you were with um, the grandfather of punk rock, Iggy Pop on the beach. And I recited to him what Uh they said, and he looked at me startled and he goes, do you see the goosebumps? That was my favorite scene. And I thought, oh, we shared this little, because I really like Iggy Pop, believe it or not. (laughs) So yeah, so it's quite an experience. That's incredible. Okay. You did give me goosebumps actually hearing that because it sounds like there was a connection there. We talked a little bit about the pandemic and and the impact that it's had, and especially in the hospitality industry. Oh, big time. What do you think the food scene will be like in the next year or so? You know, the more I'm reading about the changes, the more our food scene is going to drastically change. I think fine dining in and of itself will shrink and it will be for the purists and for companies who appreciate the purity of that industry. Um, The mom and pops are going to come to the forefront, but I think the, the middle section where young chefs, wait staff, everything is just being reimagined. You you know, I I read an interesting article just recently. There's a lot of people who in the industry are tired of the abuse because being in in hospitality can be very abusive on all levels. Number one, you're on your feet like 18 hours a day. Uh, I I don't think it's an industry that you can say, oh, you know, I can retire on this. Uh, it, the wear and tear on your body, on your on your emotional and physical well-being is huge. So, and plus, they can, trying to get staff now is very very difficult. People are, you know, I like if if I go out or you know when I do go out, I I always make eye contact with everyone. I always you know say hello. Like to me, it's a privilege, and to have someone who's looking after you is a privilege. I. I and, and I tip and I, I always tip more than what you know, it even says. But at the same time, I don't want to seem like I'm on a different level. It's just if you, if you were sitting here and I was standing there. So I, I just believe in that type of philosophy. But that's, that's just me. But it will change. I don't think we're going to see as many restaurants. I think the, the, the beauty and the art, artistry of the industry won't come back for at least five or six years when there will be a hunger for that type of service, food quality, the magic on a plate. Because you know you can you can give a you can give a plate of pasta to be created to 10 different chefs and you will have 10 different, you know, from the mom and pops to the whole cuisine to the Michelin stars. And meal boxes. I mean, even the, the the subscription boxes that came out of COVID. Yes. My concerns with the subscription boxes is everything is measured, which is great. So they'll send 
two cloves of garlic and it's all neatly packaged and the salt is neatly packaged. And I'm thinking, this is a colossal waste that's going into a landfills. They really need to bring back Homac. Sorry. I agree. They need to bring back life sciences. You know, when I went to high school, they taught you how to uh, Homac, how to take a handful of ingredients and create a meal. And I remember being in a, in a class, like a Homac, and it was like, just understand flavors, something so simple. And yet I was surprised a lot of people, even at that time, were, didn't understand you know, the, you know, the, the role of salt, pepper, sweet, savory, sugary, you know, something very simple. And I think if people were given those tools at a younger age, they'd be fine. We wouldn't have to rely on these big cumbersome boxes where when you empty them and then you throw them in the trash, boy, they're taking up a, a lot of uh, expensive real estate. And that's what I think. One of the things, many things that's come out of the pandemic is that it's forced people to learn. Yes. Yes. Everyone that I've spoken to that really wouldn't cook before that has, you know, that dabbles a bit more in cooking and in the kitchen, they're happy about it. Yes. Um, so it was nice. It was nice to see that. No, I agree with you there. A lot of people who were a little reticent about, you know, how good can this be? You'd be surprised. We grew up where my mother would take a handful of ingredients and it was just a combination of just literally nothing and creating something really delicious. We were vegans, didn't know it. <laughs> Meat was too expensive. <laughs> it's true. Then, you know, we got a couple of eggs. We didn't see fish for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, my mom would get like, uh, she'd make stews, uh, vegetable stews and things like that. They were just like, like the flavors, like, like the actual ingredients that you put in there. Uh, you know, Sean, has anyone ever checked the history of the minestrone soup? I wonder if it was just odds and ends that people had oh, left in their kitchen. Like the, right. You know, the stone soup, um, yeah. tale. Somebody says, Oh, I'll bring your pot and I'll put some stones, and then whoever adds and adds and adds, you, you come out, you can feed everybody with this stone soup, it's called. And I suspect that maybe the um, uh, you know, minestrone soup, uh, soup has the same thing, and every region of Italy has their own version. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hilarious. Mm -hmm. It's like um, uh, in my mom used to make fritelle for the holiday season. I think it was around Easter and every every region. On, yeah, it was around Easter and it was a takeoff on pancakes. When you think about it, they had to use up everything that was going to go to waste. And, you know, from from Venice and their version of fritelle all the way down to the south. It's just mind boggling. And yet it's the great equalizer. It's just amazing. Like uh, in Northern Italy, you know, butter is a key. In the South, it's olive oil. Northern Italy, it's the, the, the flavors are just a little bit more subtle. In the South, I've had a beautiful bursts of heat and savory and garlic and just, it transcends. But nothing, nothing beats a bowl of very simple, uh, humble risotto in bianco. Risotto with some butter and Parmesan cheese. It's a mm -hmm. taste of heaven. Oh, so, so good. So good. I think it's getting close to noon and that's why my stomach's growling. <laughs> it's that time. We've reached the end of another show. For everyone out there wondering how Rita got away this week without a kitchen confession. Well, that's because we had such an amazing conversation with her that there will actually be another episode. So stay tuned for the second serving of Rita DeMontis. 
head over to kitchenconfession.com for more recipes and foodie finds. Plus, you can check out ami.ca forward slash kitchenconfession for all the latest on the podcast. Be sure to leave a rating and review so we can keep bringing you more episodes you'll love. Our producer and editor is Matt Agnew, and I'm your host, Mary Mammolini. Thanks for listening. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.